Would you join me? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. If you're a guest with us this morning, thank you for coming. Those of you that are regulars here at Graceview know that normally, like for few years now, we've actually been going through the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, which is the story of, of the life of Christ on earth. And we're almost up to that point where Christ uh, is li- literally last week, just happened to fall, where Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane in agony um, over what was going to happen the next morning and even in just a few hours. And so we had that last week. But guys, here's what I'm going to do. Because, those of you that are regulars, because of where we're at in Matthew 26, there's only 28 chapters, we're actually going to be going through the burial and resurrection of Christ very, very soon, like within a few months in Matthew. So I'm going to stay away from those areas of the the details of how and what happened and all those things. So I'm going to go to this passage, which hopefully the Lord will use this morning and kind of give us an idea of why the resurrection matters. What's What's, so not the details of how necessarily it happened, but why it is so important. And I hope the Lord uses the text. So what we have open here is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have a Bible, that is awesome. If you don't, uh, you're going to see the text on the screen in a few minutes. I'm going to invite you to read along with me. Um, here's what we have. When Jesus was on earth, he had several followers. And even after Uh, He left the earth. He revealed himself to some others who became part of a very small group that we call apostles. Apostles. They're called out chosen representatives of Christ to take his message to the world. My personal favorite of, I mean, there's the 12. We know about the 12 apostles. But then this man was also an apostle who was born later. The idea of brought to Christ later. He was actually an enemy of the Lord who ends up becoming a great follower. My personal favorite of the apostles is Paul. And so the apostle Paul, I'm going to refer to him today. On the human end, he wrote what we're about to read. But on the spiritual end, God's Holy Spirit told and and caused Paul to write this letter. It's called Corinthians because there's a real city of Corinth in southern Greece. I've been there just a few years ago. I got to walk around the ancient ruins of this city. So 2,000 years ago, this man named Paul, once he was a Christian, took a missionary journey to different cities. He spent a year and a half in Corinth, Greece, and he started a church And by by saying that, I don't mean he went in and started building buildings. He started sharing the gospel, what we're going to call the gospel. It's the good news of the Bible. And so as Paul shared the good news of the gospel of Christ, people started getting saved. They became Christians, and then they started assembling together. That is a church. A church is an assembly of saved people. It's not a bit. This building is not our church. Our people are our church. And so there was a called out group. He stayed a year and a half there. But now he has moved on to another city that he's planting and building a church there as well. And he's writing back to this group. He's written about some things that they asked him questions. They sent letters. They didn't have email back then. But they sent letters and it got to Paul and it has all these letters. The Corinthians need some answers. He addresses those. He's also heard some things that disturbed him about the Corinthian assembly. And so he was kind of the the pastor missionary that kicked that off and they think highly of him. And so he is also in the same letter sharing some of the things that concerned him. And one of them we're going to read this morning has to do with some belief that was spreading through the Corinthian church about the resurrection. Normally I don't try to attack and preach on a a section of scripture as, as large as 23 verses. And so 
to put your mind a little at ease, we're not going to preach on all 23 verses, but I want to read all 23 verses of the opening of chapter 15 for context. Especially what I will not be preaching on is verses 5 through 11. So those seven verses, I'm going to read them, but I'm not going to be preaching on them. But I am going to kind of do more of a survey. Those of you that are are regulars know that we normally do what's called an expositional style. Today, this will have flavor of exposition, but it's kind of a survey of this text trying to get across the meaning to us. So everybody ready? We're going to read the Bible. And this right here is as important as anything that we're going to do today. This is God's word. Yes, it was written by a man named Paul that was specially called, but this is the Word of God written for our learning and edification for God to speak to us even today. And so with that in mind, here we go. You ready? Really focus. You've been asking the Lord to speak to you already. Verse 1. Paul writes to the Corinthians. Now, so he's in chapter 15. A lot has happened in 1 through 14. Now I would remind you, brothers. The idea there is brothers and sisters. When people become Christians, we're in God's family. We address each other sometimes as brothers and sisters spiritually, not by blood. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel. I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Paul preached it. Which you received. Catch all these words. Paul says, I preached it. You Corinthians received it. In which, this gospel, in which you stand. So your, your whole standing in life, your whole standing before God is due to this gospel. Verse 2, this gospel by which you are being saved. In other words, you're being saved from your sins. You're being saved from the penalty of your sin. But even by saying by which you are being saved, there's this process that we Christians go through. It's called sanctification where we're even being saved from the very power of sin that once gripped us and we had no control. We had to always obey sin. So Paul says of this gospel, by which you are being saved, watch, if, so there's lots of people will read this, and everyone's individual, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. So you're being saved by this gospel, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I'm going to insert this, I'm not going to preach on it, I'm just going to insert it. Continuing and holding fast To the truth of the scripture does not earn us salvation. But when a person becomes a real genuine Christian and they really receive the gospel, they can never turn away from the gospel. And so what Paul is saying, if your faith was real and genuine, then you will stand and you will hold fast to the gospel that I preached. Now what is the gospel? He's going to review it for us. The highlights, verse 3. Recounting that time when he first walked into the city of Corinth and started sharing. He writes, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance, the most important thing I ever had to say to anyone, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Did you catch that? Paul says, I preached to you. You received the gospel, but you received the gospel I preached that I also received. Paul received the gospel from God. He preached it to the Corinthians. They received it. Verse 3 again. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. 
in accordance with the scriptures. He's not saying in accordance with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels there. Those have not been written. He's talking about passages like Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 8. Verse 4. That he was buried. So here's the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, meaning he really did die. There's lots of layers in this. We'll be going through in the coming months in the book of Matthew. He was buried, that he was raised, as we've been celebrating. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Jesus being raised again. He's not talking about the gospels that we look at in the New Testament. He's referring back to a thousand years earlier to Psalm Chapter 16 or Psalm 16 verse number 10. When David talked about God's holy one would not see corruption in the grave. So the Lord is saying, Paul is saying this is the gospel. I received it. I gave it to you. You received it. You got saved. Christ, Jesus Christ, the son of God died. He was buried and he rose again the third day all according to the scriptures. Now the part that I'm not going to preach on verse 5. But the furthering, watch the evidence. So let me put it this way, ladies and gentlemen. We are not here only celebrating an empty tomb. We're not just celebrating an empty tomb. We're celebrating an empty tomb that was followed by appearances of Jesus. Paul writes, and that he appeared. Here's part of the gospel. He appeared to Cephas, that's Simon Peter. Then to the twelve, he's going through an order. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And Paul's writing in the mid-50s, in the first century. He says, of these 500, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. When you see that word fallen asleep, multiple times in the passage, it means they've died in Christ. It's like they've gone to rest. Their body is at rest. They've fallen asleep. But Paul's saying most of the 500 who saw Christ, they're still alive. You could interview them, verse 7. Then he appeared to James. That's the Lord's half-brother, one of the sons of Mary. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Now watch verse 8. Last of all, last of all, so those people that say that Christ appeared to them in 64 AD or some earlier date, whether here in North America, Mormons, or someone else, they're wrong. Watch what Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me years later, years after Christ had been resurrected. Years later, he appears to Paul on a road from Jerusalem going up to Damascus. Jesus revealed himself as alive and he had a Jesus encounter. Notice he says as to one untimely born. Untimely has this idea of premature, not ready, right? Premature, not ready. That describes Paul. Paul was not ready to be convinced that Jesus is alive. He hated Jesus, but Jesus gave him no choice. Jesus appeared to him, and then he knew that he was wrong. Verse 9, as a result of that appearance, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles. He says, I'm an apostle. But in his mind, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And boy, he did. He started, Paul was the spearhead, man. He started persecution, killing Christians before he became a Christian. The other apostles, they never persecuted the church. Paul says, I began by persecuting the church. I shouldn't even have been an apostle. But verse 10, he's not apologizing. I said I wasn't going to preach that, didn't I? My fault. Verse 10, I've got to keep moving. But by the grace of God, I am 
what I am. I'm not apologizing. He made me an apostle. By the grace of God, by God's gift, God gifted me to be an apostle. So I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. He's not bragging here. He's telling the facts. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I. Paul, you're better than him. No, 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 it's not I. But the grace of God that is with me. God helped me work harder than any of them. He called me for a reason, and I wanted to fulfill that reason. Verse 11. Now to the Corinthians, whether then it was I or they, the other apostles, that doesn't matter. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. That's the key. So now today's main text is verse 12 to 23. Paul is confused from what he's been hearing about the Corinthians. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, we read that in verse 4. He's saying, Corinthians, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? There were some people in Corinth saying, uh, dead people can't come back to life. Once the body dies, the body can never come back to life. Dead things do not come back to life. Paul's like, well, time out. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Christ is, you're with me. Christ has been raised. How can you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, if there's no resurrection of the dead, Paul concludes, then not even Christ has been raised. How can you say that? If that were true, then that would mean not even Christ has been raised. And here we go. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised, we've been misrepresenting God. For if the dead are not raised, dead are not raised, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Round two of this thought, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also, then those also who have fallen asleep, died, resting, their bodies gone to rest. In Christ, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That's the ramifications, they perished. And in verse 19, rounds it out. If in Christ, we Christians... If we have hope in this life only, if, there, if he's dead and there's nothing going to come to it for us in the future, and all we have is hope in this life only in Christ, there's ramifications. We are of all people most to be pitied if Christ has not been raised from the dead. Now he shifts gears in verse 20. This will be our last point this morning. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death. The idea is sense. For since by a man came death. This is the way God designed it. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Jesus is man. And Jesus is God. 
When we sang a while ago, holy, holy is he, Lord God Almighty, talking about Jesus, that means there's no one like Jesus in all the universe. He is completely unique. He's separate. He's holy. He alone is God and man, fully man, fully God, both at the same time. Verse 21 again. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, that's the guy that we all want to hit in the face, right? Verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But, watch verse 23 has an order. But each in his own order, this being made alive. Each in his own order. Verse 23. Christ, the first fruits. Then, watch this next three words. At his coming, those who belong to Christ. So we're talking about this second wave of people that will, well, that's why we got it. That's why I got excited a while ago. I don't know why you guys got excited a while ago. I got excited a while ago because there ain't no grave going to hold this body down because I know what verse 23 means. And I know what verse 21, verse 20, 21, 22, 23 means. I know what Romans 8 verse 11 means. They, they kept singing my message. So that's great. Thank you for doing that this morning. Would you notice three things out of our text? Number one. We've got to talk about the fundamentals of the gospel. Number one, the fundamentals of the gospel. First thing I want to point out, look at verse 1. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel, which, uh, the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Remember, we made note of the word received. Look down at verse 3. Paul says, for I delivered to you of first importance why I also received. First thought, I want to get across, guys. Every true Christian, now I'm not being mean. I'm just telling you what I've learned from vast experience this way. Not everybody here is yet a Christian. Not everybody in the room is yet a Christian. All true Christian. A lot of people say they're a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Raise their hand. Fill out a survey. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I live in South Carolina. Aren't all South Carolinians Christians? No, they're not. Right? All true Christians received the gospel. All true Christians received the gospel from something or someone at some point. Receive, follow me, means the idea of you heard the gospel. You heard it, but it's not just, okay, I heard, a lot of people haven't heard the gospel. All true Christians have heard the gospel, but it's more than that. They received it. They receive it as true. They accept it as truth. They even go so far as to, I believe it so much, I'm going to trust it. All true Christians received the gospel. From something, it could be a piece of paper, a pamphlet that you read it, a person on television, a person on the radio, a church service like this, a friend, a parent that shared the gospel with you. For me, it was my uncle, and it was particularly a man named Ed Yeoman at a Bible camp in 1979. Others had tried to tell me the gospel, but Ed Yeoman told me the gospel, and I received it that Wednesday night in June of 1979. That's when I received, all true Christians have that story. Who told you the gospel? Go to work in your mind. What's their name? Ed Yeoman. That's mine. Do you have a story in your life? This person told me the gospel and I received it. Who is your person? Was it, you say it wasn't a person, it's something I read. Or I read the Bible and God spoke to me directly from the scriptures. And I, I saw in the scriptures and the Holy Spirit helped me to understand. Praise the Lord. How did it happen for you? When did it happen for you? Christians have that story to tell. Look at verse 3. Here's the fundamentals. I'm going to hit this for just a few minutes. 
What are the fundamentals of the gospel? Paul says, I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died. Oh, by the way, if you're here this morning and you say, I don't think anyone's ever told me the gospel. That is very likely someone sitting here this morning. Be honest. No one's ever told me the gospel. Then you need to listen. You will hear the gospel. Verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So here's the parts. Christ died. That's part of the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance to the, with the scriptures. He was buried, proving he really was dead. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he proved he really had raised, was raised again by all these various appearances that were historical events that Paul refers to. That's the story of the gospel. Guys, there are so many layers to the death of Christ. Let me talk about that for a moment. There's so many layers to the death of Christ that I don't have time to go into them. Last week, we looked at his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. He will be betrayed by one of his 12 closest followers. He will be arrested. There will be six phases of a trial that he will go through. Three Jewish phases, three Roman phases. In that, he will have a crown of thorns put upon him. He'll be blindfolded and hit and slapped and spit upon and mocked and hit over the head with a stick. He will be stripped of his clothing and beaten with a special kind of whip. They didn't have like one lash. It had nine lashes. And he'll be beaten over and over by two people taking turns. Strong soldiers that are experts at bringing you that close to dying. He will be scourged like that. He will carry his cross through the streets. He will be nailed, literally pierced, hands and feet. Put on a tree and hang to die. He will, in essence, on the physical end, suffocate to death like crucifixion victims. There are so many layers to what happened in the death of Christ. But I want you to write down what are the three key components of Christ's death. Number one, it must be his death to fulfill the scriptures must be bloody. It had to be a bloody death. God requires blood to be sacrificed to pay for sin. Second thing, it had to be substitutionary. That means Jesus is not dying for anything he's done. He's taking our place, other people's place. He's dying in the, you're down I'm in that spot. Christ's death is substitutionary. And the third thing that we really spent a lot of time on last week, I want to revisit again. Christ's death had to be bloody, substitutionary, and sin-bearing. It had to be sin-bearing. Last week, as you're writing that note, last week one of the things we noted, it was this sin-bearing aspect of the death of Christ that caused him to have so much agony in the garden of Gethsemane. He's praying. His disciples are a stone's throw away and he's literally on his face. He says he is so sorrowful. He's about to die. He is crying. I've, I've never been here, guys. I've never been. I've, I have, anyway, I've had times of being intense to where I can feel my head starting to perspire in prayer. But I have never sweat like Jesus was on a cold night probably around midnight, but he's on his face with loud cryings and tears begging God, is there any other way for people to be saved without me having to go through what I'm going to go through tomorrow? And we now learned there was no other way. The only way was for him to bear the sins of mankind. That caused him so much agony. Here's why. Jesus' nature as God is so opposed and hates sin so much, he despises sin as I believe. And I've said it multiple times. He despises sin more than you despise the idea of burning alive. 
You, that's, that, that would be the number one way that most of us would say, if I get to choose how I will not die, I do not want to die by burning alive. More than you despise burning alive, he despises the idea of sin. And yet the Bible says on the cross, he became sin. And he bore in his body our sins on the tree. He hates sin, despises it. That's why he's agonizing in the garden. He had to become sin. Again, this thought hit me last week, and it's true. He had to become sin so that God could pour out his wrath on him, substitutionary, in our place. And to do that, though, it had to be equal. God's not going to take a partial payment for sin. I have realized that if I were to pay for my sin in God's eyes because I've broken God's laws, and you have too, my individual payment would be to go to hell for eternity. For eternity, on and on. That's one person's payment for sin. And yet, somehow, some way, Christ is going to pay for the whole world, every person who's ever lived, billions of people. How is that even possible? It's only possible because Jesus is the infinite Son of God, doing within a few hours what is the equivalent of all of our cups of wrath of God for eternity, For one person times billions and billions and billions, all of that is being placed on Christ at one moment of time. Write this thought. I think it's your second note this morning. God's wrath, we're talking about how Christ was, how died for our sins according to the scriptures. God's wrath could not be appeased merely by Jesus dying. You say, Jeff, but it's it's a death on a cross. It's a crucifixion. That's not enough. God's wrath would not be appeased merely by Jesus dying. It had to be sin-bearing. That's what had to happen. Christ had to bear our sins. He had to become sin for us. I want to share this. It's Friday night. I was about to go to bed. And knowing I'd do a main study again Saturday morning, Friday I tried not to study. But right before I went to bed, it was around midnight, I was about to doze off, and the Lord brought this to my mind. And so I woke up, and I ended up writing this. And I want to read it to you, this little handwritten section. Because to me, it was enlightening. Graceview, guests. What's being described is not the case. Hear me well. By the way, I punched in my phone, how many people did the Roman Empire crucify? No one knows. What I read on Saul on multiple sites was the estimates are at least tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands, but there's no way to know. So y'all understand that? Jesus is not the only one who was ever crucified. He was crucified with two other people literally on the day that he was crucified there in Jerusalem. There were three of them. He was in the middle. This, what we're talking about, was not the case of Jesus going through the same things that every other crucifixion victim went through. But because of who Jesus is, God ascribed special meaning to it. Read that again. That whole sentence is one sentence. I think this is theologically correct. Let me say it again. This is not the case of Jesus on his cross going through all the same things that every other crucifixion victim went through. But because God knows who Jesus is, that's his son, because of that, then God ascribes special meaning. If you thought that, I think you need to change your mind. There may be some element of truth to that. Yes, Jesus was physically going through what all other people. He wasn't sheltered from it. 
And yes, he is different from everyone else. And yes, God ascribes special meaning to his crucifixion because of who he is. But that's not the main thing that was taking place. Follow. No. Jesus was going through and experiencing something totally unique to him. Totally unique to that moment in time 2,000 years ago. And I'm going to confess to you guys. I wish I had a better answer. I have a leaning. I don't know if what, what I'm getting ready to talk about happened throughout the six hours of Jesus on the cross. He was on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. on that Friday. I don't know if it was the whole time or was it only the last three hours. I, I think it was the last three hours what I'm describing. I think it was that. This became sin and bore our sins upon his body. It may be the whole six hours. And somebody may hear this. That guy's a heretic. Careful. The scripture isn't clear. You say, why would you think that? Because through the first part, the first three hours, he is talking. And the phrase, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That is repeated. The wording there means it's repeated. Notice he's calling God his father still. But after noon, the earth gets dark. It is dark. On the cross, there is quietness all around. It is quiet. I mean, it is dark for three hours. And in that darkness, Christ no longer calls God his Father. He cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe it was in that three hours that he was sin for us. And it was quiet. What is happening on that cross? What's he going through? He's all by himself. That's what he's paying for your sin, Grace View. Those three hours, he's agonizing. He's praying. He's just bearing it. And there is no answer. God Almighty is pouring out his wrath on Jesus on the cross. And he's taking it. And nobody can even see what's happening. But at the end of that, he shouts again. It is finished. I've done it. I paid for it. Paid for it all. Say, Jeff, what do you think was happening? I think it was the last three hours. There was an unseen, unknowable to man dynamic where every occurrence of sin of every human being, whether sinful thought, sinful action, sinful attitude, sinful word, sinful omission. You didn't do what you should have done. All the people who've ever lived, all who've ever lived, all who are alive now, all who ever will live, all put on Christ in that three hours on the cross. Maybe the six, but at least in that three hours laid on him so that God the Father could pour out his wrath. And Jesus paid the price, substitutionary, bloody, and sin-bearing. And that's the gospel. But one last thing before we hit our second point. You who are veteran Christians, do you sense that I left something out? Okay, we got Jesus Christ died for our sins. He's buried. We're going to talk about he's raised again. Is there any other aspect about the good news? Well, the Lord's holiness. Yes, that makes a way for us to be holy. But as I read this, I had to change my way of looking at this because at first I thought Paul skips it. It's not evident, but then I realized, Jeff, hey, time out. It is evident. How, here it is. Here's the good news. How do you actually access that holiness of Christ to count for you? How do you access it? By faith, by believing. 
So here's the final part of the gospel. Jesus has done everything to pay for our sin. And God, because Christ has done it all, God extends to you, you. Listen, I don't care who you are. You say, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the things I've done. Doesn't matter what I know. God knows everything about you. And God is extending you to you through his son's death, eternal life. He's offering it. All you have to do is hear his promises, believe in what Jesus did on the cross, and receive it. Like accept it as true to the point that you trust it and rest in it. By faith alone in Christ alone, not in anything you ever do. That's the gospel. Number two. Now we've got to move to verse 12. We're skipping verses 5 through 11. And we're going to 12 to 19, right? Here we go. We need to talk for a little bit about the consequences of resurrection. The consequences of no resurrection really is how we need to write that, right? What are the consequences of no resurrection? Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, Paul wants to know, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. As soon as you've written that, if you're taking notes, keep your pen moving because I want to put this one up there. This is absolutely a fact. Belief in the resurrection of Jesus is required in order to be saved. Belief in the resurrection of Jesus is a requirement in order to be saved. You say, Jeff, where is that in the Bible? Let me give it to you. Here's one. Just listen, not on the screen. Romans chapter 10. Here, Guys, listen. Hey, you who prayed and said, Lord, speak to me today. Listen to what the Bible says. Romans chapter 10, verse number 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, your whole being, your core, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I ask you this morning, do you believe that God raised him from the dead? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Verse 10 says, For with the heart... One believes and is justified. With the mouth, one confesses and is saved. All true Christians come to a point where they with their mouth can say, Jesus is the Lord, and Jesus is my Lord, and I know for a fact that God the Father raised him from the dead. I believe that that's a requirement to be a Christian. So now back to Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul wants to know this. And I hope you'll follow in the tracking because my message is not going to be the same as Paul's this morning. Paul wants to know, hey, t- hey, wait, wait, Corinthians. How come some of you can say that there's no, some of you are actually teaching there's no resurrection of the dead. But you've already had to confess that you believe Jesus rose from the dead. Did y'all just catch that? Corinthians, I'm talking to save people who've received the gospel unless you've believed in vain. So hang on, Jeff. Do you think it is possible that there were some saved people at Corinth were going around teaching that Christians' bodies are not raised from the dead, but they believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? They believe that, but not this. Do you think that was possible for true Christians? I do. And I know we may be quick to call that heresy. They didn't know. I'm going to offer to you two reasons why. Perhaps some of them were former Sadducees of, of Jewish belief. And that was so ingrained in them that the Sadducees, the Jewish Sadducees, did not believe in resurrection at all. But then they come to a point, they know that Jesus has been resurrected. They believe in him. But they don't think that that means their body's going to come back alive. 
or the Greek culture. That's Corinth, southern Greece. The Greek culture was so strong, and it had these ideas. They're philosophers. They're brilliant philosophers who were wrong, said everything that is spiritual is good and godly and pure. Everything that is physical is evil and corrupt, like our body. So here's, here's the Greek thought. Your body is like a corrupt, evil tomb. It's housing your soul and your spirit. That immaterial part of you that is good is housed in this awful part of us that's always pulling us down. Here's the way they thought. When you die, your soul and spirit actually gets to leave your body. You would never want to go back to that. That's a good thing. You'd never have that again. The Bible teaches us that the body in and of itself is not evil. It's just we have this nature that likes to sin. And the body has cravings that when those two things conflict, we like to sin. So here's my point. There were people who had professed Jesus is resurrected, but they think that no one else is going to be resurrected. And so Paul is writing to correct them. And so here's where I'm at this morning. Paul's dilemma and argument and case that he's making, their struggle is not ours. Here at Graceview, we don't struggle with the resurrection, so I'm not going to preach his sermon exactly like he was doing it, trying to convince you of the resurrection. Here's what I do want to do. I want to use Paul's arguments about the meaning of Christ's resurrection because he's, look again, verse 13. Look at verse 13. For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14 is going to be key. And if Christ has not been raised, so his whole thing is, okay, you believe Jesus is resurrected, then why would you say that no one else can be resurrected? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then that would mean Jesus is not resurrected. And if Jesus is not resurrected, then, do you see what he's doing? He's using like a negative standpoint He's using a purely hypothetical situation to, from a negative standpoint to make very positive truths made known to us. And so that's what I want us to do. Here's our thought. You're going to have to pretend. If you're a Christian, you're going to have to pretend for a few minutes, what if Christ had not been raised from the dead? To put that, again, purely hypothetical, non-reality. This is non-reality. But what if Jesus had not been raised from the dead? Let's put that thinking on for a second and think about the consequences. Paul gives five. Said them quickly. Number one. Verse 14 and 15. I'm going to read it. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Look at verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So verse 14. If Christ is not raised... Then what's the ramification? Our preaching would be in vain. That would be the fallout. Preaching would be in vain. Here, follow me. Watch. No life has ever impacted the world quite like the life of Jesus. He had the greatest life of all time. But what if the greatest life ever came and lived and then died? He lived and died. But he didn't come back to life like he said he would. MacArthur writes of that situation. If he did not come back to life... He writes, without the resurrection, the good news would be the bad news. And there would be nothing worth preaching. Without the resurrection, the good news would be the bad news. Why would it be the bad news? What's he mean? Here's what he means. It would be bad news because it would mean that God's son came to earth and made these promises. He was going to die for us on a cross and pay for our sins. And then he was going to be put in the ground, but he was going to come back to life the third day. If that doesn't happen, then it didn't take. It didn't work. We're in big trouble. 
The best we had, we sent to take care of our sins, and yet it didn't happen. It didn't work. That would be a massive failure. That is, the chance to have good news is now actually the worst news. It had been better if we didn't even know anything. Now we know that the best we had couldn't do anything for us. He's dead like everyone else. Write this thought. For Jesus to not have been resurrected would mean that Bible preachers, and that's what I strive to be, I try to make a difference when I'm giving my opinion and when I'm preaching the Bible. My goal is to preach the Bible. Well, if Jesus is not resurrected, that would mean that Bible preachers, three things, Bible preachers have been deceived, duped, fooled. Man, you, got, you believe that? You've been telling people that? You've been deceived. Number two, it would mean that Jesus is delusional. And number three, here's a big one. It would mean that the apostles who were required, required to have seen the resurrected Christ, it would mean that they are the cruelest of all liars. So the world is filled with people who lie, but man, we'd have to put the apostles at the very top of the list. Those are the worst, most cruel liars of all time because they just didn't rip people off out of their money and their property. They had people believing their message and putting their whole soul's eternity on what they were saying happened and they were making it all up because they said that Jesus is alive. So if you're here this morning, you think, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, time out. Wait, preacher, listen, I'm not yet a Christian. Do you think there's a chance that maybe they did make the whole thing up? Maybe they were lying. Maybe they got together and wanted to be famous and said, listen, let's come up with this story and let's act like we've seen Jesus. Not possible. Here's why. Because the Bible, along with reliable historical accounts, have taught us that these apostles, all with the exception of one, and they tried to kill him, they all died a martyr's death. Let that sink in. So to finish your note, intentional liars do not become martyrs. People who lie intentionally... Do you guys understand that to be an apostle, you had to have a testimony that you... have? Okay. We think you may be an apostle. Are you one of the apostles, Matthias? Have you seen Jesus after he's been resurrected? I have. Where did it happen? Here and there. And I've talked to him, and we have a relationship. I have met Jesus after the resurrection. Okay. And they took a vote, and the Holy Spirit acknowledged Matthias really was one of the apostles. My point being, there is no chance they've intentionally lied because when it comes time to dying for your faith, nobody's going to die for what they know is alive. All these guys died being put to painful deaths, tormentuous deaths, knowing that it was because of their faith and their declaration. Yet they made up their mind, we will die for our faith before we will ever say we didn't see the Lord. John, the, the apostle says, we have seen him and we have handled him. I've touched him. I know he's alive. Number two, what would be the ramification? Again, verse 14, look at it. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead... Then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Your faith is in vain. That's what it would mean. So if you're here this morning, say, Brother Jeff, if Jesus is still dead, if his body was still in the tomb this morning, and we know that he died, being crucified, but he wasn't raised again, then what would that mean? If you think it's okay, I still believe in Jesus. I've still put my faith and trust in Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, your faith, you, you may have a little faith. You may have a pretty good bit of faith. You may have poured your whole self, everything in your whole life. I'm putting all my faith in Christ. It is worthless because you are then nothing more. If that's the case, you are nothing more than the Mormons and the Muslims and the Hindus and the Buddhists. 
Because all you would be putting your faith in is in a dead man, a dead man. That's all those other religions. Their faith is doing nothing. They have great faith. Their faith is doing nothing. I'm sorry to be mean. Their faith is doing nothing for them because their faith is in dead people. Our faith is not in a dead person. Our faith is in a living person. So your faith would be in vain. All of you who think, boy, I went there and my soul got fed. I read that and my soul got fed. And, and, and boy, I talked to God and I could sense his presence. If Christ is not alive, you're fooling yourself. You've only been talking to yourself. You only got moved by some well-worded songs with good lyrics and powerful music and probably some good vocals. That's all that happened. You were talking to yourself. You were getting worked up. You were at a low point. You were, you were trying to convince yourself that something was real that really wasn't. Your faith would be in vain if Jesus is not alive. Third thought, quickly. It would mean, verse 17, Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised from the dead, once again, he says, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's what it would mean. That you, ladies and gentlemen, if Christ is not alive, you are still in your sins. Why is this so terrible? Watch. One of the things that I noticed this week reading this text was verse 15. Stood out to me. Paul is making this whole argument. What if Christ isn't alive? Like some may perhaps think. And Paul is saying, if the dead can't be raised, then Jesus would not be able to have come back to life. And if Jesus is not alive, then here's the ramifications. We're still in our sins. Verse 15 stood out to me because, watch what it says. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because, and he goes off and talks about that. I want you to get what I'm about to say. It struck me that if we're going down this hypothetical road where Jesus is not alive, what it would mean, Paul still gives no ground whatsoever for a thought that there's no God. So if you think, well, what would it mean? If Jesus died on the cross but it did not come back to life, I guess that would mean he wasn't the son of God, and I guess it would mean the Bible's a lie, and I guess it would mean there is no God. Paul is not going to give you that third point. He's not going to give you the third point. Jesus not coming back to life would not mean there is no God. If you're taking notes, here's what it would mean. There is still a God. God still exists. But what if Jesus does it right? God still exists. He's still holy. You're still in your sins. And you're still going to pay a price for being in your sins. All it means is your hope of someone helping you and paying for your sins, that's all gone. You have no escape from the wrath of God. He still exists. He's still holy. He's still just. He has to punish you for your sins. But your great hope of Christ, that's gone. You're on your own. That's what it means. You're in your sins in the way of wrath all by yourself if Christ did not rise from the dead. Fourth thing. This one is found in verse 18. It's right there before us. It's very simple. But frankly, if you really think about it, it should make you uncomfortable. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep, note the words, in Christ, they died believing in Christ, they have perished. Write that down. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, it would mean that our loved ones, our dead loved ones have actually perished. You say, Jeff, does this mean like they've been annihilated? They've gone into soul sleep and their body just decomposes and that's the end of them. No, 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 that's not what it means. It means our dead loved ones have perished like the Bible talks about perished. It would mean this. 
To understand what I'm about to say, you need to actually picture a loved one that has died. You say, Jeff, I'm not a Christian. Okay, do you have any loved one, a close friend, a relative, a parent, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, grandparents? Can you think of anyone? You say, no, I'm not a Christian, but boy, they were. They died believing this Bible stuff. They died believing Jesus. Well, then if Jesus is not alive, let me tell you the situation about your loved one. What this would mean is that while you sit here this morning in a comfortable, and I get it, some of you may think, I could could use about three or four more degrees, cooler, okay. All in all, we're talking about a comfortable room, and you're getting ready to go eat probably a nice meal with other loved ones. It would mean that while you're here in a comfortable room getting ready for an Easter meal with family and friends and loved ones, that your dead loved ones who died trusting in Jesus they are right now in hell's torments. That's what it would mean. Your lo- Did you think of one? I'm thinking my mother. My mother passed away five months ago, November. If Christ is not alive, then my mother is right now burning in hell eternally, in torments and in misery, and your loved one is too. Here's the thought I want you to get. At this moment, their existence is just as real as your existence. This is your existence. That's your existence. You're going through that. Your loved ones who've already left this world, they're going through something, and that tells us what it is. They're burning in torment because our great champion proved to not be a champion. And then the fifth one comes in verse 19. Verse 19 says, Paul says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. We are of all people most to be pitied. Christians would be most to be pitied. If Christ isn't raised from the dead. So write this thought. Here's the fifth thing it would mean. This current life is all that matters. That's what it would mean. If Christ did not come back from the dead, then it means this current version of life is all that matters. Let me say it again. We're hypothetical. Jesus is dead. He died, but he hasn't come back to life. Now what? Hey, listen. Everybody listen. This life's all that matters because you can't do anything about the next one. Oh, it's going to be horrible. You're going to face God because Jesus not being alive doesn't change the fact that there's a God and you've sinned and broken his laws and his holy just nature is going to demand punishment. And we know what the Bible says is the punishment. It's eternity in hell. That's waiting on you. You can't do anything about it. I'm going to try harder. No, you've already blown it. You've already broken God's laws. You're done. You're toast. But you have this life. You better make the most of this one. It's all you got. I'll I'll go further. How old are you? How old are you? Are you old? (laughs) Do you understand our hypothetical? Are you middle-aged, which is code for well over halfway? Are you, do you understand what that means? What I'm talking about, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, you had better squeeze everything you can get out of this life. Because you have nothing, you have no control of the next one. It only, only this one matters. If you're young, you say, I'm young. It's going to fly by. Try not to think about what's coming. That's what I would tell you. That's what I would tell you. Don't think about what's coming, but it's coming. Write this thought. 
What Paul is writing in verse number 19 is not a comparison. This is so subtle, I'll probably miss getting it across. Paul, if you'll look this way, is not comparing sinful life, a sinful life. Y'all know what I mean by a blatant sinful? I'm, I'm talking about not just commit sin. I mean like really sinful. Watch. Murderers. Kidnappers. Drug dealers. Paul's not comparing sinful living with biblical living. He's not saying that. If Jesus isn't alive, then it would be better to be that than that. That's not true. What he's comparing is you have one blank, and you're going to see one word on the screen, but I want you to write another word in front of it, right? What he's comparing is the normal, selfish life with the life spent for Christ. That's what's being compared. It's not the godly, biblical life compared with a horrible, sinful life that gets you thrown in jail. No, that's not what we're talking about. He's talking about the normal Let's just call it what it is, what we gravitate toward, selfish life. That's how we, that's how we're, we default toward, normal, selfish living. He's comparing that with these people over here who've been living their life, spending their life for Christ. These people are to be pitied. You should be living this life. He's not saying the horrible, sinful, but the normal life, the selfish life. You should be doing that. Don't do that one. If Christ has not been raised from the dead. What do I mean? All the people who've been making sacrifices on earth for the cause of Christ have made a massive foolish error if he's not resurrected. I wasn't trying to be alliterative, but think of this group and its people in this room. Here's what it would mean. Every discipline, every denial, every dollar... Every word of witness that made it awkward and uncomfortable and got you mocked and made fun of or persecuted. Every act of service is a massive waste of diminishing resources. It's All you have is this life. Here's the resources you have. Time and your money and things you get access to. Why are you wasting it over there? You should be spending it on yourself and those people that you care the most about. Stop doing those things. That's what it would mean if Christ was not raised from the dead. You have diminishing resources and you're blowing it. Skip ahead. Look at verse 30. Look at verse 30. Paul from personal experience is writing, why are we in danger every hour? That's his life. He's asking, why would I do this? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. He's not saying physically he's dying every day. Paul is saying he Read the book of Acts and you'll see. At any point, people multiple times tried to kill Paul. People took, 40 guys one time took a vow. We will not eat or drink until we kill him. And they set out with a plan. It didn't work. God spared him. They stoned him. They beat him with rods. They beat him with whips. They had a, they had a plan to get him together while he was carrying some money. They were going to kill him on another occasion. This is real life for him. Why are we in danger every day? He says, I'm telling you guys, I die every day. So verse 32, look at it. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? We don't even know what that means. But apparently Paul had something where he's put in an arena with wild beasts and God spared it of him. Why would I do that? 
Why, why is this man being hunted? Why is he being thrown in there? Because he says Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God who's come back from the dead. And he's telling people the way to heaven is put their faith in him. And we're tired of hearing that. And we don't believe that. And so put him in there. They try to kill him over and over. And Paul's attitude is, why would I keep doing that if I didn't really know Jesus was alive? Look at the last phrase of verse 32. If the dead are not raised, then here's what we should do. Let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. And then we go to hell. If Christ isn't raised, eat and drink. Because coming soon, one of the tomorrows will be today. And you'll die. What's Paul saying? Grace view. If this current life is all that matters, I want to fly through what I would advise. This is my advice. If Christ is not raised, avoid all risk. Avoid all risk that you can. Don't do anything dangerous. Satisfy your selfish desires. I wouldn't say satisfy your sinful desires. Satisfy your selfish desires. I would tell you, don't waste your time trying to save people who cannot be saved. Just stop. Here's the big one I would advise people. Find that fine line of trying to find and do and experience the most fun, the most fun without too many repercussions. In other words, don't do anything that the Bible talks about. You reap what you sow and man, it's really like, in other words, if Christ is not raised from the dead and you say, I like to race fast cars, don't do it. I like to skydive. Don't do it. This life's all you have. You need to make it last as long as you can. Don't do anything that may shorten it. You say, hey, I got the answer, man. If Jesus is not alive and he, he, he did not get raised from the dead, then I'm just going to go out and do eat and drink and shoot up and snort and, and, and smoke everything that's out there. No, I would advise you, don't do anything that causes addictions because those, those highs are short-lived and it's going to destroy your life and your relationships. Don't do that. But I would also advise you, don't work too much. Don't overwork. In other words, don't spend your life trying to build and amass and, and leave something for. No, work just enough to make enough to do the funnest things that you and your family like to do. That would be my advice because this life is all you have. Y'all do understand that I just described how some people who say they're Christians live. They work just enough to make sure that them and their family does all the funnest things. And they live constantly for this life. They never live for the next. You're living as if Jesus was not raised from the dead. Our last point this morning is number three. What is the significance of Jesus' resurrection? It starts in verse 20. It starts in verse 20. Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, y'all help me. How can Paul say for a fact that something has happened? How could he say for a fact, I'm telling you for a fact, Christ has been raised from the dead? You say, well, the Holy Spirit told him to write it, so it must be true. Okay, give that. But how else could Paul say for a fact, I know this to be true? Let me put it this way. I know for a fact that Victor is at Graceview this Easter morning. I know, let me just double check that my, art, my eyes aren't tricking me. Yes, I know for a fact that Victor, you are here today, right? 
He thinks so, and that's good enough for me. (laughs) I know for a fact he's here. Here's what Paul is saying. I know for a fact that I encountered Jesus himself on the road to Damascus, and he was alive, and it changed Paul's life. I believe, I could say it this way, Jesus forced Paul to believe in him being alive when it was the last thing Paul wanted to do. And so Paul becomes convinced of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the same one. He met him on the road to Damascus, and then Jesus taught him personal things about Christ that none of the other apostles knew. For three years, he and Jesus had this special tutoring training time. So Paul could say, oh, I know he's alive. By the way, the change in the life of Paul is actually one of the major proofs of Christianity. He changed his life. Look back quickly. So, did I get that first point? No, I didn't. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 20, because here's the first ramification, the first significance of Jesus' resurrection is found in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Here it is. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Back in verse 12, as you're writing that, I'm reading verse 12. Paul says, hey, Corinthians, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Those two go together. And then in verse 20, he says, Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does first fruits mean? What's this idea? Here's, here's what Paul's saying. If it has already happened, then it can happen again. If it's already happened, you say there's no resurrection of the dead, but if Jesus is already resurrected, not only can it happen, but it will happen again. Because Christ has resurrected, that means others will be resurrected. Jesus is going to be the first fruits. Watch. Fruits. You got fruits. You have the first fruits. What are the first fruits? Raise your hand if you've ever raised tomatoes. Any of you? A lot of you? You ever raised tomatoes? When you pick those first tomatoes, what does that tell you? Oh, these are the first of some more that are going to be the same as these. It's going to be like these. Tomatoes you don't pick like, well, that's it. One round. Throw that in the trash. No, this is the first round. That's what Paul is saying. The ESV study Bible has a note in it that I saw the other day. It says the following. First fruits refers to a first sample of an agricultural crop that indicates the nature and quality of the rest of the crop. So the first fruits indicates the nature and quality of the rest. The first round of tomatoes, I would say, it tells you what the next, what you can anticipate is going to come. The ESV Study Bible note continues. Christ's resurrection body gives a foretaste of what those of believers will be like. So if you're here this morning, Jeff, does the Bible say anything about, okay, Jesus resurrected, he's the first fruits. Apparently this is implying that we are going to be resurrected. No grave is going to be able to hold our body down. He was resurrected physically, literally, bodily, and we're going to be resurrected in these same bodies. What is it going to be like? A whole other message that I can't go into, I challenge you to go home and read it, is verse 35 to 44. Verse 35 to 44 shows that our current bodies, Christians, your current body cannot be used as a gauge and a barometer of what your glorified body will be like any more than seed 
Because the Bible talks about these bodies, verse 35 to 44, these bodies are like seed. When I die, I'm going to be planted in the ground. I will be planted. And this the seed that goes in the ground has to die, but then it brings forth something different. Here's this point. What's our bodies going to be like? The glorified body, the resurrected, raised body? You cannot look at these bodies and get an idea what those bodies are going to look like or perform like any more than you can look at a seed and have an idea. I know by looking at this seed that it's going to produce that tree or that stalk or that bush over there. You can't tell. The seed does not give an indication, not an accurate one. You just know that this somehow becomes something else and then it's going to happen. What the Lord is saying is your body, he means business. When Christ was resurrected, he was in a glorified body and we will have the same. Number two, second, how did I word it? Significance of Jesus' resurrection just in this passage comes out of verse 18 again. Watch verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ will have perished if he has not raised from the dead. But now look at verse 23. Verse 23. But each in his own order, this coming back to life, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Second thought, write it down. The significance of Jesus' resurrection means that our loved ones who trusted Christ have not perished. This should encourage us. Guys, if I was not preaching this morning and I was in my hometown of Weaverville, North Carolina, I would have gone to West Funeral Homes Cemetery because they've done this for years. I didn't know that. I've never heard of a cemetery doing this, but they do a sunrise service at the cemetery. I thought that's all. I said, man, that is like the best place to do a sunrise service is at the cemetery. And if I wasn't here this morning, I would have been there at 6 something a.m. That's the place to go. It's like this is not burial ground only. This is resurrection ground. Because Christ did rise from the dead, here's what it means, Grace View. Our loved ones have not perished if they died trusting in Christ. Verse 23 gives an order that absolutely agrees with Romans 8, 11 and Romans 8, 22 and 23. What is it? All right, I'm going to say something that I've said multiple times, usually at funerals, and I get strange looks from Christians when I say it. Your loved one that died believing in Jesus, picture them again. It's my mom. Who is your person? Picture them. I know who you're thinking of, Miss Ann. I'm going to tell you what's going on with them. Our loved ones who have died trusting in Christ do not yet have their glorified body. That's what verse 23 is saying. Each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So my mother does not yet have her glorified body. So then what's happening? Yet, Jesus' resurrection proves that God really means business about his promises that he's going to give them a glorified body. So then what's going on with our loved ones who died trusting in Christ? Like my mom and your loved one. Here's what's happening. Until Christ returns, we don't know when that happens. Until Christ returns, their soul and spirit remain in the presence of the Lord in heaven. I'm going to use it. Longing for the completion of their salvation, which is the restored, redeemed body. 
My mother, I'm going to tell you, I think biblically, she right now is in the presence of the Lord. There is a real place called God is everywhere. There's this place called heaven where God specially manifests his presence. My mom, her soul and spirit is in the presence of the Lord in heaven, but she is longing for a glorified body and one day she'll get it. You say, are you implying that dead Christians are not completely satisfied? They're not completely satisfied. Oh no, hang on. They're in heaven a lot better than you. A lot better than you. Paul says in the book of Philippians, where they're at is not better than here. It is far better than here. Don't feel sorry for them. All I'm saying is they've yet to get their glorified body, but they haven't perished. They haven't perished. The third ramification of Jesus's, the significance of Jesus' resurrection is number three. Not only does it mean we're going to be resurrected, not only does it mean that our loved ones haven't perished who've trusted Christ. But it means the sins of believers are removed. The sins of believers are removed. Do you see verse 21? For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. If you're taking notes, let's hit on Adam quickly. Adam is the federal head of the human race. He's the federal head of the human race. Adam is the seminal head of the human race. S-E-M-I-N-A-L. He's the federal head of the human race. He's the seminal head of the human race. What does that mean? As the federal head of the human race, when Adam sinned in the garden, choosing on purpose to eat the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, disobeying God's command, Eve was deceived and fooled. She didn't do it on purpose. He, intentionally knowing what he was doing, chose to sin. As our federal head, what he did, his decision, affected all of us. And as the seminal head, what I'm talking about biologically, in his semen, S-E-M-E-N, in Adam's semen, all of us were actually in him. All of us came from him. So there he is. You're in there. Billions and billions and billions of people. So yes, I do get mad at Adam, but I also have to back up and say I was there in him committing the sin in him. He's our federal head. What he chose to do affects all of us. So what's the takeaway? Because of what Adam did, verse 21, as by one man death came. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die. What happened? Because Adam sinned as our federal and seminal head, that means that all of us, all of us when we're born, we're born with this nature that has us separated from God spiritually. And it means we're on this track. We are going to die physically. The death rate is still 100%. You know no 120 years old. Those of you at Graceview, I'm sorry. I say that all the time, but that gets it across for me. You are born a descendant of Adam. Why? Because you, we all inherited Adam's nature, the human nature of Adam. It is human nature to have a heart, to have lungs, to have a liver. It is human nature to have a brain. It is human nature to sin. It is human nature to sin. We don't have to be taught to sin. We have all sinned because we inherited a sin nature which separated us from God. Now, you graceful people, help me out. What percentage of the people who've ever been born are born in Adam? 100%. Verse 22, as in Adam, all die. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for what you did, buddy. You got us condemned. You passed along your sin nature. For as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Pay attention, please. 
Paul is not teaching universalism where eventually, hey, Adam led us all to death. Jesus must apparently, because of what he did, leads everybody who's ever lived is going to be saved. No, watch. All are born in Adam and in sin. We're all human beings with his sinful nature. But God made a special law. The special law of God is that any person, me when I was nine, any person who will put their faith and trust in Christ, his substitutionary death on the cross, then they're not just in Adam, they are now placed in Christ. The last song they sang started with, in Christ alone. I'm asking you this morning, have you ever taken up God's promise of the special law that if you'll put your faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross, God will not just let you be in Adam and affected negatively by Adam's decision. God will move you to be in Christ so that when Jesus was on the cross, you're on the cross spiritually. It counts as if you were dying. When he's buried, you're in the tomb. And when he rose again, you rise again in him. That's called being in Christ by faith. Have you ever done that? And I'm going to ask you, when did you do that? Because that's the key thing. Your next to the last note is the following. Jesus' resurrection proves that God really does accept Jesus' death as sufficient for our sins. That was the guarantee. Man, when God raised Jesus from the dead, that was God's way of saying, I accept his payment there on the cross from noon till three where he took your sins. That is sufficient. Somehow, some way, God says that is equal to your eternal existence in the torments of hell, Jesus already paid it. And the way to access that is by believing. So then that leads us to the last point. It's verse 17. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. So let's flip it. If Christ has been raised, then what would that mean about Christians? That would mean that faith is not futile. Faith has now become priceless. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, faith is priceless. Here's what it means. Hey, if you're not yet a Christian, Christians are not to be pitied. Man, look at them. They get up early and they read their Bible and they pray and they go to, do you guys like do this every week? And like, you seriously give some of your money? You don't have to do any of those things to become a Christian. None of those things will help you become a Christian. But many Christians choose to make sacrifices and denials and disciplines and and giving and service and sacrifice. Don't pity them. You should emulate them. You should become them because Christ is resurrected from the dead. What that means is every person who is not yet a Christian should become a Christian immediately. I mean like right now, right now, right now. You say, why? I'm done. I'm done. I'm really done, guys. Why should I become a Christian? Because you're going to spend your eternal existence in one of two places. You will either be in heaven with God in a glorified body, I'm talking about eternity, after Christ has come back, or you're going to spend eternity in hell in a version of a body that experiences hell. That's your two choices. There are no third or fourth choices. And you're not going to be annihilated. You're going to have one of these two things. And the only difference between these two groups of people is faith. This group has faith in Christ. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Bow your heads just for a moment. I want to ask a very serious question. I shared my story. My story is in 1979. 
I heard the gospel. I had heard it with my ears before, but I had never really heard it until that Wednesday night as a nine-year-old boy. I really heard it. I'll back up. I heard it on a Monday and a Tuesday, but on that Wednesday night is the night that I chose to believe it so much, so much that I trusted Jesus as my Savior. And so, Grace View, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask everyone here. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Don't look around. Don't worry about anybody else's response. Here's all I want to know. You're all born. We're all born in Adam. We're all born in Adam in sin. So my question is, has there ever been a moment in time where whether you knew the terminology, whether you knew it or not, has there ever been a time where you took God up on his promise of putting your trust in Jesus to be your Savior? You're born in sins. Has there ever been a point where you decided, I'm going to not try to earn my way to heaven by being good. I'm going to just trust Jesus. I'm going to confess him as my Lord, and I'm going to confess my sins. I'm a sinner. But have you ever had a point where you say, I believe what Jesus did on the cross paid for my sins. It was for me, and I asked God to save me. If you have done that, and don't put your hand up just to fool me. This is for you. It's between you and God. If you have done that, would you please, by an uplifted hand, just signify and say, yes, I have done that, Brother Jeff. I have done that. There's a time in my life where, and would you hold it up for a moment? Would you say, I, yes, most all the hands I'm looking around, you say, I have done that. I remember a time or, or I know that I've trusted Christ. Thank you. So this morning, some hands did not go up. I don't know if maybe they didn't understand the question. Maybe they just don't want to be manipulated. I realize some people are like, I'm not going to let a preacher manipulate me to raise my hand or not. And I, I've, I get that. That's stubborn. I understand. Probably not a great sign. But what if there's someone here this morning that you couldn't raise your hand because the truth is, hey, I don't even remember your name, preacher, but here's the thing. I've never heard the gospel like I've heard it this morning. And I've never had a time where I've put my trust in Jesus. I've never done that. If that is you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But I'm going to ask you to listen. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And my prayer is not going to do anything for you to save you. But before I pray and dismiss us, I want to ask you this question. If you've never become a Christian, do you believe the Bible when it says that God loves you? That Jesus loves you? Do you believe that? That's part of the gospel. He came to die for you. He took your sin. Hey, he's already paid for your sin. Why would you pay for your sin through eternity in hell if Jesus has already paid for your sin? So my question for you is this. Do you believe that God loves you so much he sent his son to die and he will keep his promise? If you, right there where you're sitting, not even by moving your vocal cords, just in your soul and your spirit, do you believe if you ask God to save you that he would? He says if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you would be saved. If you'll call Jesus your Lord. 1 John 1, 9 says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm asking you, do you think God would forgive you if you asked him? Answer that with a yes or a no in your heart. Yes or no. I believe that or no, I don't believe that. If you just said in your heart, I believe if I ask him to save me, he would save me. So here's my last question. 
will you follow Jesus this morning and trust him and ask God to save you this morning? Will you do it? I'm asking you to do it. I'm asking you to become a Christian, a true Christian. I'm asking you right now, bring God in your sphere of awareness. Right now, you and God talk. He hears everything. He knows your thoughts. Be pure in your thoughts. You're not talking to me. Would you right where you sit, just talk to God and say something along these lines. God, right now, talk to him. Do you mean it? God, I am a sinner. I confess. You're right. I am a sinner. I agree with you. Tell him that. You must confess your sins. But don't stop there. Talk to God. And he hears all your thoughts. Talk to God. God, I believe that you sent your son to die for me. Tell him that. Do you, if you, only if you believe it. But if you believe it, tell God. God, I'm not only a sinner, but I believe you sent your son to die for me. For me. And then, go all the way. And God, I believe, I'm trusting that his death was enough to pay for my sins. I don't have to help him do anything. It was enough. I believe your word says it was enough. And your resurrection of Christ shows that you accepted his death. Tell God, I believe it was for me. And then lastly, would you just do this? Ask him. He always says yes. Ask him. I did when I was nine. Ask God right where you're sitting. If you're watching online, right where you're at, right now, just talk to God and say, God, based on Jesus' death for me, I'm asking you, would you please save me from my sins? Forgive me of my sins. And tell him, I dare you to go all the way. Tell him, God, I receive your gift of salvation. I receive it. Just like those Corinthians, I receive it. I accept it as true. I take it right now. I trust you. And thank you. Grace for you, would you stand this morning? Father, Father, we thank you this morning that faith is the most valuable thing a person can have. And we thank you that you have given us faith. Father, we thank you that believers have had their sins removed. Father, we thank you that our loved ones who died in Christ have not perished. They are with you awaiting a glorified body. Father, we thank you that Jesus' death means that he's the first fruits and we will also be resurrected. We thank you for the truth of Easter and of the resurrection. And Lord, my final prayer this morning, if anyone, anyone here or anyone online received your gift of salvation this morning, would you please give them courage and boldness enough to let us know and to go public and to just pull one of us aside and say, hey, I trusted Jesus as my Savior this morning. And Lord, let us be encouraged by that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming to Grace View. Kids, sixth grade and under, if you want some chocolate, head this way. Sixth.